it's for this very reason that thinking from first principles is so valuable. It's because sometimes there are things limiting us in our potential that aren't related to the laws of physics. And until the laws of physics are what's holding you back, you can't say that it's impossible. Hello, and welcome back to Bit of a Tangent. I'm Jared, and joining me as always is Jean-Luca. So this is part one of a new series we've got out on mental models. Now, the concept of mental models is certainly of interest right now, and there have been a number of good books recently published on the topic, most notably by Shane Parrish, who runs the excellent Farnham Street blog, and also Gabriel Weinberg, who founded the search engine DuckDuckGo, which, if you're at all concerned about online privacy, you should use because they are very upfront about not using your data in the same way that Google and company do. Anyway, probably a bad idea to get into our first tangent in the intro. But today, Jean-Luc and I wanted to actually get into some examples of mental models. And we wanted to let each other form associations between them as we went. This really was a learning exercise as much as it was a podcast. And I came away knowing more than when I started, which is always a good feeling. In this first part, we mostly cover general principles of good thinking, good decision making, and idea generation. I hope you find it valuable. Quick thank you to everyone who has supported this podcast by sharing it with a friend, and a special thank you genuinely to everyone who has reached out to us just to tell us that you enjoy it or that you've gained something from it. This is extremely gratifying to both of us, and it really keeps us going. Anyway, without further ado, here's the episode of Bit of a Tangent. We're going to be talking about mental models tonight, and that's a topic which is both increasing in sort of popularity and, and general interest. And the unfortunate thing that I've noticed is a lot of people speak about them and their use, but no one ever gives the damn examples. So the aim for this podcast or the set of podcasts is to go through as many as we can, explaining along the way. And hopefully we learn something by talking about it and bouncing ideas off each other. And hopefully the people listening gain a deeper understanding by joining us. Absolutely. Fantastic. I mean, what, what more could we want? Yeah. So to start, uh, let's just lay the groundwork and maybe I can get you to say, when you hear or think about the term mental model, what are you thinking about? I think uh, anyone who's listened to more than a handful of these episodes will be screaming map and territory right now in their heads. But um, that is definitely something we can uh, briefly touch on again. When I hear mental model, I think of some kind of useful approximation that I have in my head that I've potentially cultivated, but sometimes not, that allows me to quickly and accurately enough estimate things for practical purposes so let me give you an example the one i always like to use is we all in our heads if we're drivers have a mental model of how a car drives this is different to our model of how the mechanics of the car work or how each individual component interacts with the laws of physics right so you're not thinking about how the combustion engine operates at a chemical and mechanical level when you put your foot down on the accelerator your model of driving to actually drive is just you push this thing to go more faster and you push this thing to go less faster and you <laughs> twiddle this thing to go more left or less left and more right. Essentially, that's the model. And you can have varying m models for that depending on the circumstance, right? I mean, you might have a different one when you parallel parking, for instance, but this is now splitting hairs. The core idea there for me is that you're not accurately 
simulating reality one-to-one in order to interact with the world because that would just be so inefficient you'd never get anything done and so what you're doing is just approximating it at some level that's useful to you in order to achieve what you're trying to do and you've almost deliberately cultivated that for that purpose but with maybe deliberate is the wrong word in that a lot of the time we're just doing it by instinct without consciously thinking about it because it's something we seem to have learned to be quite good at over our evolutionary and personal histories yeah I mean, that's a great way to think about it you know uh, whilst you were speaking there i was um thinking about how i would answer this question myself and there's a really good analogy to machine learning in, in some sense i think that i haven't explored before so let's just go with it and then we'll dive right into the actual models themselves but if you think about what we're doing when we do some sort of machine learning often is some sort of dimensionality reduction right you've got mm. points in a high dimensional space right and to make that more concrete this could literally just be like the list of attributes right and that could be like there could be 10 different attributes there which would make that a 10 dimensional space for example you know this should just be size color length width the density etc etc absolutely what you're doing when you're doing some sort of machine learning is you are creating a model which doesn't necessarily have to tell you where a point is in every single dimension, but you can sort of collapse some of those dimensions and only look at the most important ones, the ones that explain away all of the variants, right? Exactly. In some sense, what we're doing with um, a mental model and, and the link to map and territory, which you already alluded to, is that reality is, well, as complex as reality is. It's the most complex thing. And because... Mm -hmm as uh, has been pointed out, if you want a perfect map of Africa, well, the most perfect one is just Africa itself. So as soon as you want to create a map of reality, you have to lose some detail, right? Because you can't fold up Africa and put it in your pocket, but you can fold up a map of Africa. So Absolutely. There, there, there's that analogy there where we're trying to collapse down into a sort of lower dimensional, uh, more sparse representation that encodes the the relevant features, the relevant, most important concepts and ideas. And when you're using mental models, what you're doing is you're saying, let's take all of reality's complexity and find the most useful ways of viewing it. Absolutely. So, I mean, other mental models that people might be familiar with, a great one that comes up quite often is like demand and supply curves uh, from basic economics. And this is a nice distilled version, right? And And as we know this doesn't really get seen exactly in this way in the real world so much so that it was only quite recently that a data set existed that perfectly actually showed demand and supply curves which was when uber introduced surge pricing and then made that data set available to economists so it's a simplification of reality and all the factors involved that helps you think about things and make useful decisions quickly without having to take every factor into account because for the most part it models the things you care about so I think another point to just clarify here is that we'll use the terms map and model interchangeably, I have no doubt, throughout the course of this episode. Yeah. But the the map and the model, really the same thing. They are a useful, smaller approximation that you can, in quotes, carry in your pocket. And the territory or the subject or the world or the universe is the thing you are modeling, which has all the complexity and which you interact with. But you do it with good approximations one more thing before we jump in here is uh where we've got one of these ideas and, and many of these ideas are you know almost all of them i would say are not our own but we're going to try and add our own interpretation here so yep. we'll try and add in acknowledgements as we go if anyone gets missed or left out that's totally our fault and we're sorry and we will genuinely do our best to either link something in the show notes or explain as we go anyway that being said, I think that we would be remiss not to start with one of the most broad uh, mental models that there is, and it's more a technique or a practice, and that is the Feynman technique. So tell me what you think about that and, and how and if you use it. Right. So, I mean, obviously, it's a uh, attribution to Richard Feynman who popularized it. And at least in the context that I use it, the Feynman technique 
is a way of making sure that you understand something, usually something complicated, complicated and technical, like something Feynman would have taught in physics or quantum mechanics, through the use of this willful attempt to oversimplify the topic. So a nice way of thinking about it, at least my distillation of it, I don't know that this is exactly how Feynman himself would have put it, but if you can't explain this thing to a six-year-old version of yourself, then you can't really claim to understand it yourself, right? If you are hiding behind terminology and vocabulary, and if your mental chunks are so ill-defined that you are hand-waving a lot away, you probably don't understand it. And when you can explain it as though you were explaining it to your six-year-old self, in so doing, to get to that point, you almost invariably have to go through understanding the topic. And so it's a good approximation of how to understand something. And it also forces you not to really use or rely on jargon. You can't hide behind fancy big words. You really do have to have a nuts and bolts understanding. Exactly. And uh, episode 13, I believe it was, uh, How to Learn Anything, we, we referenced this. And I think the, the example we used then was probably, I think, entropy. And we said, you know, you can use the term entropy and that can be very vague and we might not know what we mean by that. So if we start talking about things decaying or getting more complex or disordered over time, then you start getting into, okay, we, we understand what this means. And a nice little trick to make sure that you are not using vocabulary in a harmful way to obscure your misunderstanding is to just hot swap it with a made up word. So flugity flu instead of entropy. And when you start saying the flugity flu of the system increases, you start realizing that like, if you don't know what entropy is, if suddenly flugity flu increases in the system doesn't help make any sense, then you don't understand what entropy is and you are using it as a crutch. So that's a little hack that, uh, that, that go, that it relates highly to, to that technique. Okay. So next one is, uh, definitely attributable to Peter Diamantis, I think. And it relates actually to a great post on a similar topic by a less wrong poster named the Zvi, um, which he called more darker and what Peter Diamantis calls it is go 10 X, right? And both ideas essentially say that as humans, we sometimes limit ourselves by setting implicit limits or ceilings on what we could do. So just because of the fact that most undergraduate degrees are four years long, people have this implicit limit of how much can be learned in four years. And so what Diamantis will do is he says, why can't you achieve your 10-year goal in six months? So what you're just doing there is you're switching out and, and, and you're just asking yourself at a question which you might not have even realized you were assuming, which is that 10-year goals have to take 10 years. Because what happens is 10 is a nice round number. And so when people say, what's your big goal in life? Well, they say, oh, it's, it's this big thing. And then you go, well, I guess a perfect time scale for that is 10 years. And this just asks you to consider, could that not be done in a much shorter time frame? And, and the reason this relates to this um, post by the Zvi called Mordaka is, um, <laughs> and I believe that the, the title refers to like Daka, 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 the sound that a machine gun would make. And the idea is that for some problems, what happens, and humans do this all the time, is you find some small thing that works, but let's say it costs a little bit. And we just genuinely sometimes have a blind spot to saying, if a little bit worked, a lot more might work even better. Sometimes, right. you know, it's like the person who finds that a particular diet works a little bit well for them. And they're like, oh, I feel a little bit better today. And then doesn't take the next obvious step of trying to do that diet every day and seeing if they feel a lot mm. better, you know, and we can just fail to, we have a blind spot around adding more in. Yeah. If you imagine that a thing has some kind of, linear relationship but as you zoom out it looks more like a, a sigmoid curve uh like an, like an s curve then uh what you really want to do is is push something to the extreme and find out when the the uh find out when the curve in the hockey stick shape really occurs because then you know at how far you can push a thing and still get benefit out of it before things go awry but yeah it's a really it's a really cool and useful idea and i think this whole thing of 10xing it for people who haven't heard that meme before it, it comes from 
at least the context I've always heard it in is like startups and Silicon Valley and, you know, angel investing where people are looking at, okay, how can you 10x your returns or how can you 10x your customer base or essentially just like moving an order of magnitude up in scale in whatever your key metric is. And uh, a a sort of related mental model to this is a little trick that I think Tim Ferriss has popularized and spoken about a few times, wherein he will say, okay, I have some task I'm trying to do, like write my next book. And I think it's going to take me like a year and I have a deadline in a year from my publisher. But what if someone held a gun to my head and threatened me and my family's lives just as a mental exercise? And said I had to do it in one month. What what would I do if that were the case? Right? Like I don't have another option. Now I have to just deal with it. What would you do in those cases? And a lot of the time, that aggressive, adversarial way of thinking can help you really drill down to what it is that could make the main difference, and 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 cut out all the rest of the crap that's just obfuscating. Yeah, perfectly said. Here's a general one. Tell me how you use the idea of looking not to prove things, but to look for disconfirmatory evidence. Yeah, this is this is baked into the, the core of scientific thinking, right? The, the scientific method is based on the idea of trying to disprove things instead of proving them. And as humans, we have extreme confirmation bias. We look for evidence that confirms our beliefs and reinforces the beliefs we already hold. We don't tend to actively seek out things that contradict our beliefs. And so the reason that this way of operating is so effective is that it counters for that bias in some sense and because it allows you to very quickly move through wrong ideas, to fail fast in the startup terminology, right? So instead of doing 10 experiments that all come back with results that just show your original hypothesis to be correct, you instead should try and falsify your hypothesis as quickly as possible and in so doing you can eliminate it because really the way you should be doing anything that has uncertainty involved is with a method similar to the scientific method wherein you have some problem or some question you write down the minimal thing you know about it right and and generally people tend to overstate what they really know and i think the the example that uh, robert imperson gives in zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance just to throw back to a previous episode is like when your motorcycle's broken and you're trying to now figure out what's wrong, just say the things you know, right? And usually that's just the motorcycle won't start. Mm. You don't go, oh, there's probably something wrong with the electric. No, 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 you don't know that. That's a hypothesis. Just the motorcycle won't start. That's all you know, and it in theory should, right? And then your hypotheses are there's something wrong with the electrics. There's no fuel in the tank, blah, 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 blah. Whatever the various hypotheses are, you've, you've searched through hypothesis space and selected some that are likely, And then what you do is try and run an experiment to disprove each one as quickly as possible to falsify them, right? So if one of your hypotheses is that there's no fuel in the tank, well, then check the tank. Then you've quickly falsified that hypothesis and you can move on to the next and eliminating them until you find one that you struggle and fail to eliminate. And that's very, very likely to be the reason. Awesome. You know, what's related to that, and I think this is something that Kevin Kelly has spoken about before, is this idea of trying to kill your best ideas. So mm. he speaks about how if, if you're a creative person, as many of the people in our audience will be, you're constantly you know hearing great ideas and hearing things that inspire you, and then you generate a few ideas. And as humans, we fall into this trap where we kind of fall in love with our own creations. And his point is just that you should, with any given idea, you should try as hard as you can to think of the number one reason why it won't work. Because, you know, we're all... Uh, beings with limited time and limited attention and so the quicker Mm. you can kill any given idea the better and then he says if not that then give it away like try as hard as you can to get someone else to do it and then anything that you a couldn't kill based on you know some first order attempt and couldn't give away well those are the things that you are most likely to be gaining some sort of comparative advantage So I guess with that, it would be remiss of us not to talk about what is comparative advantage. And and just before you get into that, I think one great way you can illustrate this to yourself, anyone who's sitting there guarding their ideas, who doesn't want to tell anyone about that cool startup idea they have until they've signed an NDA, 
like if you doubt the fact that you have way more good ideas than you can act on yourself or then you can practically falsify on your own what you should do for a time is always carry a notebook or have your like an app set up on your phone that as ideas come to you you write them down and i've been doing this for a few years now and i mean i get like 10 what i consider to be really interesting ideas every week pretty much consistently and i act on maybe one in a hundred of those and usually it doesn't follow through right because there's some limit on it and so those then get wasted because some of them might be able to be implemented by other people and putting them out there into idea space is just increasing the likelihood that good things come into the world and bad things but if people are generally working towards good things we can assume that the good will uh it will win out over there but yes coming back to comparative advantage i've changed my mind um <laughs> okay bit of a because, tangent because what happens is so i've also kept a list of ideas and i noticed something about that list which is that as you accumulate entities in it some of the good ones tend to be at the top and mm. the bad ones float to the bottom and maybe once in a while you scroll down and, and look at them and remind yourself but what that makes me think of is a really key mental model out of the discipline of computer science and that is the idea of how caches allocate which items are kept in them and that's the least recently used algorithm so as the computer scientist, please do walk us through that. Yeah, no pressure. <laughs> right, least recently used. Well, firstly, we have to just do a little bit of background on what a cache is. And I think most people are familiar with this in a practical sense, but just to define it more formally, I'm not reading off any definition here. I'm just going off my mental understanding of it, which I think is probably more useful for our purposes as a disclaimer. Right, so a cache is a smaller faster to access place that you keep some things temporarily that you might need to use again soon. So forget computers for a second. Think about the desk in your office or your study or your room where you work. And then think about the shelves where you keep all your study materials, your, your books, your paper, your files, those kind of things. Now, your shelf can hold a lot more than your desk can. But to work with anything, it's really impractical if you have to get up from your desk, walk over to your shelf, search through everything to find the file you're looking for, then find the page in the file that you're looking for, and then work with it. And then when you've worked with it, then put it back and go sit down again. And then you go, actually, I need that again. And then you go back to it. Right? Like that's really inefficient. So you now use the cache and the cache in this analogy is your desk. So now when you're going to work on your geometry, you go and grab your maths file and you pull out the section on geometry and you bring that to the desk. And now you've got a whole bunch of pages in there and as you need one, you take it out, you work on it and then you can put it back into the pile on your desk, right? So the, the desk is, is functioning as a smaller area that you can access more easily, more quickly, more efficiently, whereby you can temporarily store things that you're working with. Now, these are great and you have these at every level of computer architecture. You have these at every level of computer networks, right? You, you, everything's, the caches are a core principle of computing. And I think we could do a whole episode on some of those core principles at some point in the future, but they're everywhere. But now you get to this problem of how do you decide what should be in the cache? Well, if you've just used something, you can then go put it into the cache, but it would be great if you've got like all the space in your cache before you start using things, right? So imagine your desk is empty and you sit down to study. Now, if you're getting up every time you need something initially, well, that's also kind of efficient. So wouldn't it be great if you could predict what things you're going to need before you need them and predict what things you're not going to need anymore so that you can get rid of them and make space for more important things. And there's a whole bunch of different approaches you can take to trying to do these kinds of predictions. But one of the most common and general purpose methods is least recently used, which is exactly that. The things you should get rid of are the ones you've used the least recently right? The least recently being the longest to go. So if you are working on your geometry and you mostly just looking at like the formula sheet, um, but every now and then you've reached for say some, some problem set from the beginning of the year that you found really easy and you didn't need to refer to much. Well, you haven't used that in a long time and now you need to go get more study materials or more paper or more pens and you need to make space. Well, the thing you get rid of is the least recently used, which is that homework problem from the beginning of the year that you can already solve because you haven't touched it since the beginning of the evening. So now you get rid of that and you make space for other things. Now this analogy can carry through as a technique to various other spaces and can be used all throughout life because it's so incredibly simple. So if you've got any ideas of 
how people can implement it in their daily life or some inspiration from your own life because I find it incredibly useful. But have you got some examples you'd like to share? Oh, definitely. Uh, the simplest one, right, is a general mental model view. Whenever you are finding yourself doing some sort of sorting activity, right, here's a common one. You download a bunch of things onto your laptop and now you want to put them into folders. Ask yourself the meta question is the time it's going to take me to sort these into folders. Well, could I just save that time by searching for it later? And an even simpler one would just be if I click sort by date last modified, right? That's kind mm. of implementing least recently used on the folders in, let's say, your downloads folder. And you will find if you do this that the stuff you need most often will be in the top three or four entries of the list because that's what you used last. And the stuff that you almost never use will drift down to the bottom and periodically you could probably recycle that. Absolutely. Yeah. And a related idea is actually the data structure known as a stack, right? And the beauty about this, this data structure and its name is that you can literally just think of a stack, the alternative being a queue, right? And it's, it's, it's to do with the order that things go in and out. But if you think of a stack of pizza boxes, well, the last one that went on top is the first one that comes off when people start taking, whereas a queue, the last one that entered the queue is the last one out of the queue. But the beauty of a stack is that it does a pretty good job of implementing least recently used if you are happy to have space to store items from the stack. So ironically, those people that seem to have a very disorganized desk that just has a massive stack of papers on it at all times are actually implementing a pretty efficient caching algorithm because the things that they use often are always on the top of the stack. And those are the things that they're most likely to need to use next. And so the things that are quickest for them to retrieve are the ones they'll most likely need. And it actually turns out to be fairly efficient. Awesome. So here's one that I got from, I believe it was Patrick Collison. And it's a way to quickly stratify decision-making, which is something that everyone does with an alarming amount of regularity. And this is a great way to think about it. So what he suggests is we, sh we all know that we should be better decision-makers. And the way that people generally go about this is or I should take more time to think uh, through the consequences of a decision. Well, what he says is basically what you want to do is stratify your decisions into four sort of overlapping quadrants. You have important versus unimportant, and then you have irreversible and reversible. So here's how it goes, right? If a decision is important and irreversible, think hard, sit down and really work it out. If it's important but reversible, well, just try something and then if it doesn't work, try something else or pivot and do something else and do something else and iterate, right? If it's unimportant but irreversible, well, you have limited energy, so don't waste it there anyway. And if it's unimportant and reversible, who cares? Like, you can just keep trying things and it's literally the last thing you need to think about. So I thought that was just a really simple sort of decision matrix. And again, like what, we're, what we're after here are simple rules. So we've so far been focusing on practices, and these are ways you can challenge your intuitions for a given decision or help you make decisions. Any reaction to that, or shall we? Uh, yeah, I do have a reaction to that. Um, so I like decision-making matrices. They're really useful. And another one that's probably more popular or more well-known, at least, is the Eisenhower matrix, which allegedly comes from the former American president. And it's a, it's a very similar concept, except it just replaces one of the axes. Um, so in the Eisenhower matrix, you've got importance on the y-axis and urgency on the x-axis. So if something is not important but urgent, you should delegate it to someone else, right? Because someone else can take care of something that's not that important if it needs to be done now. Right. If it's urgent and important, then you should do it, like right now, today, as soon as possible, yourself. If it is important but not urgent, you should schedule a time to do it yourself. And if it's neither important nor urgent, then just eliminate it completely. It's just taking up space and, and wasting mental bandwidth. So a very similar related idea and especially helpful if you are a leader of a group or you are having to manage people that are working with or under you because it helps you decide which tasks you can let other people do safely. And effectively. How's this for one? The future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. Yeah, I really like this. I mean, just as a as a great phrase. What's the attribution there? I feel like it's uh, on the tip of my tongue. 
in the show notes <laughs> it'll be in the show notes yeah yeah um anyway yeah so i really i really like this one because it it summarizes an idea that i think like yuval noah harari touches on in sapiens a few times and that a lot of people in the futurist and techno optimist spaces talk about it quite a lot which is that anytime you get new radical technologies you've got very few people who have access to them usually because they're cost prohibitive right so in vitro fertilization is an example right 20 years ago only the very wealthy had access to that but it's becoming more and more accessible and the thinking is that any technology that is prohibitively expensive now will be adopted by a few people but over time it becomes cheaper and more ubiquitous and so in 50 to 100 years things that were the cutting edge are now widely available. An even better example of this is uh, running water and flushing toilets. Mm. Those were luxuries that only emperors could afford and have a few hundred years ago, maybe even not that long. And now we consider it to be a basic human right. So it just goes to show that like, yes, maybe full gene sequencing now is really expensive and most people can't afford to do it. But in a hundred years, that almost certainly won't be the case. And this is this idea of unequal distribution or uneven distribution, right? Geographically, socioeconomically, uh, by class, by income, by whatever metric. But it's a really interesting concept because it breaks this idea of everything moving forward in time into actually it's more of a, a wedge whereby there's always some people that are at the cutting edge and there's always many people who aren't and some people who are woefully far behind. And to understand that that is how technologies usually evolve and that it doesn't mean that we shouldn't keep pushing the envelope. Yeah. You know, what I think is actually going to turn out really useful in this episode is the fact that as you're speaking, I'm being reminded of other mental models that I have in my toolbox. And now I'm creating associations that are essentially latent. I didn't know I had them. But when you were mm. talking there about this uneven distribution, there's a mental model that came from Josh Wolf. He's, I think, director at Lux Capital. And he calls it the, the, the directional arrow of progress. And how he sort of uses it is you look at some trend and you do the simplest thing in the world, which is just, first of all, you have to spot it. And then second of all, you just kind of assume that it keeps going, but you look for where this trend is driven by powerful underlying causal mechanisms. So one of the best examples he gave of this is why he was never a big fan of solar energy, but he's a much bigger proponent of nuclear energy. And this was his thinking. He said, look at the directional arrow of progress of fuel sources, right? If you go back all the way when we first used them, right? Our first sources of fuel, well, they were human labor then eventually we start to master fire and we start to burn at first wood. Then we uh, start to burn coal and then we start to burn hydrocarbons, petrol, oil. And he says, what's, what's the arrow of progress there? The arrow of progress is that the energy density of each of those media is increasing. So for a given weight, you can get more energy out of it and if you continue that arrow and you assume it continues, well, you, you notice that nuclear energy is more energy dense than anything else on the arrow so far. So he says, if you continue mm -hmm. the arrow, that makes sense. Whereas solar energy is not actually on that trend. It's fairly big, bulky panels that are quite inefficient at converting sunlight to energy. And yeah. as just an example, it's, it's quite a powerful way to think about the future. Exactly. Well, I, I agree with that model entirely and I think it's really, really useful. Although I'm going to just pick a little semantic battle here and say that depends what kind of solar you mean. Because if you're looking at energy density, well, then nuclear fission, which is the nuclear energy we mostly think of, is pretty energy dense. But there's something which is arguably much more energy dense and efficient, which is nuclear fusion. So if you're talking about solar in the sense of having a Dyson sphere wrapped around your, your local star... Well, then I think, I think that's definitely the direction that the, the arrow points. But uh, yeah. that's, uh, that's just more to, to indulge a certain listener group. That's a semantic point because I think what we're talking about here is photovoltaic cells, right? Anyway, so I want to move on to 
a category that I sort of generally refer to as principles. So, so far we've been dealing with sort of this amorphous thing of practices, but let's try some principles. So as I list them, the first one is being comfortable with uncertainty. Why is that a mental model? And what does that mean to you? Well, I think humans are primed initially to avoid uncertainty at all costs. And this is the cause of a lot of our mental cognitive distortions and a lot of the anxiety and stress that we endure. But when we started developing ways of thinking, the scientific method, statistical analysis, those kind of things, what we realized is that almost everything in the world is uncertain. It's uncertain because we can't accurately predict the future, even if we have all the information now. We can't take very accurate measurements of things, and those inaccuracies spiral out of control as we make more distant predictions. And generally speaking, information is obscured or conflicting, or there's a whole bunch of noise and error in every cognitive or intelligence system we have. And so really everything in the world is uncertain, right? And that's why statistics is so powerful because it's the art of decision-making under uncertainty and especially Bayesian statistics. And when you accept that and start becoming comfortable with uncertainty, what you allow yourself to do is have two or three or four or N conflicting ideas at the same time about something and to entertain all of those and to give each one of them some kind of rating or score in how confident you are that they're actually the true underlying reason, cause, connection, whatever it might be. So for instance, when you hear a noise outside late at night, well, one idea that you have is maybe it's just the cat. Another idea that you have is maybe it's someone trying to break in. Another idea you have is that it was the wind that blew that pot plant of yours that's been really unstable over. Right now, a lot of people are quite familiar with this kind of reasoning under uncertainty. And there you would say, okay, well, depending on where you are in the world, depending on what pot plants you own, depending on if you own a cat, each one of those has a different likelihood of being true. And so you can have a probability distribution over those. Right now, and what you can then do is say, okay, well, that's either reasonable or unreasonable to act in certain ways. And you can start making decisions based on those weightings. You don't know which one is true, but you're betting based on the best information you have. And when you accept that most of life is uncertain, your ability to leverage that fact and to make good decisions is increased tremendously. Perfect. And what I would just say is that often our mental models give conflicting accounts of the world. And we have to be able to evaluate both and see which one is correct. Absolutely. All right. Next thing here is, next principle, make time to think. Yeah, I mean, this is this is crucial, right? Um, I remember reading Freakonomics, I think, at the age of about 15 and really, really falling in love with it. And then when I was, I think, 17 or 18, the authors, Levitt and Dubner, they released a think like, How to Think Like a Freak, which was essentially them writing about how they came about coming up with these interesting hypotheses to investigate in an economic, behaviorally economic sense. And one of the things that they advocated for was just making time to think. And ever since I heard that, I've been investing a significant amount of effort when it comes to scheduling and planning my life to actually just break out some time that is almost a regular event where I can just sit and think. And this is one of the hardest times to defend in the world because of all the modern distractions we have and because it's so easy to just let other things run into it, right? But it's incredibly valuable. Anyone who's sat down and just spent five minutes thinking really hard about a particular thing knows how much progress you can make in that time. And when the mind is free to wonder, new associations can be made. If you doubt this, look at the only time in a day where you can't do other things. And you can't distract yourself, right? You're standing in the shower for five to 10 minutes. And what happens? Suddenly you, this creative font of all these brilliant ideas and associations. So much so that there's a subreddit called r slash shower thoughts just devoted to the fact that people have these brilliant, creative, completely bizarre ideas in this time that's not devoted to thinking, but hugely facilitates it. So now imagine if you put aside an hour every day, two hours every day, a whole day every month, just for thinking deeply about things without distraction, without stopping to look things up. Incredibly powerful. All right. Work from first principles. And this is already something that we touched on when we spoke from the Feynman technique, but essentially you want to 
boil things down to their fundamental truths and then reason up from the axioms that you've set for yourself, right? State the assumptions you have, the basic beliefs you have, the most atomic, irreducible parts of this thing, this theorem, this piece of your life, and then use reason to build up more complexity from there rather than the sort of other way of doing it. And this is borrowing uh, Tim Urban's language here, but reasoning by analogy, where instead of going down to fundamental truths, you sort of look at something, you say, oh, well, it's kind of like that. And, and this is a, a sort of meta-mental model because a lot of the time what we're doing with mental models is exactly that. We are analogizing a process to some other idea, maybe from physics, maybe from biology, maybe in economics. And we're saying, well, these are roughly similar, mm. right? And this is just an injunction to always remember to check that your mental model is valid by trying to take the phenomenon going back to a close inspection of the territory and seeing if you can rebuild your map. Quick uh, attachment to that. So yes, I think absolutely agree what you said there on first principles. And the reason to remember why this is an important thing to do, the reason why it's so valuable to occasionally stop and think of things from first principles, as difficult as that is, is because a lot of the time we get bogged down in the same thing that stops us from having that 10x thinking, the same thing of comparing ourselves to things we've seen before, which is useful most of the time, right? Probably it's going to take you the same amount of time to do something that it took other people, right? That's, that's, that's fair. But occasionally there is some other factor, social or economic or political, that is actually the bottleneck. And we fool ourselves into thinking that all things have to be that way. And you mentioned Tim Urban, and he brings this up when doing his deep dive article on Elon Musk. And the reason he brings it up is because this is something that Elon has done a couple of times very notably in the sense that anyone who looked and said they wanted to start their own space agency, essentially, or space company to make rockets would have looked at everyone who had done that before. So you'd look at like uh, NASA, the Soviet space program, etc., And you would look at how much these things cost. And you have a ballpark figure there. And thinking that it would cost a hundred times less is ridiculous. Except that that's exactly what Elon did. He went and taught himself everything he could learn about engineering and about rocket science. And then went, if we just make all of these things ourselves instead of, instead of having contractors bid for supplying them, we could make everything much cheaper, much more reliable and reusable. And that's exactly what SpaceX then went and did. And it's for this very reason that thinking from first principles is so valuable. It's because sometimes there are things limiting us in our potential that aren't related to the laws of physics. And until the laws of physics are what's holding you back, you can't say that it's impossible. Awesome. All right, here's one. What does it mean to focus on the process of something and not the outcome? Hmm. I haven't encountered this in that formulation before. Where did this come from? I'm interested. Hmm. I have to think for an attribution on this one. But the general idea is that when we're trying to do something, hmm. we can become overly obsessed with the end state. Right. This is when you're thinking about being a rock star on stage in front of millions of people and not sitting down right mm. now practicing chords on that guitar okay and so daydreaming can be motivating but there's actually so many links here and so many models here and, and if i was going to drop in a philosophical model this is a very stoic thing to say right the stoics were all about as a sort of philosophy take hold of, of the things you can control but know from the start the set of all things which you can't control right and the stoics would say relinquish all of that Whatever that is doesn't matter. Do what you can and then have complete equanimity if it comes to pass that the thing out of your control meant that you don't become a rock star. Mm. They would say that the only course of virtue is is controlling the, the set of things which are in, of your, in your control. And they would also point out just how tiny that bucket is. So process not outcome is a really useful one. And it's it's quite related to another mental model, which is to be patient with results but mm. impatient with actions and yes. i think that's probably gary vaynerchuk but again the idea is be impatient to implement to act implement your 10-year goals now this weekend but know that the results really might take 10 years except yeah. that if you don't start now well 10 years becomes 11 and then 12 
Yes, yeah, so I have two sort of related ideas on that note um, now that you've given it that framing. The first, I think, was something that came from Carl Newport, potentially in either Deep Work or So Good They Can't Ignore You, one of his two most popular books. And he gives the example of this guy who's a really, really good musician and, you know, a lot of people are like, okay, cool, I want to be a rock star. And then what they envisage, what they want is that, you know, playing to packed uh, stadiums, you know, the sex, drugs, the rock and roll, the fans, the being interviewed on live TV, the success, the fame. But in reality, the majority of the time is actually just time spent practicing and creating and working and improving your craft. And I think New Point sort of distills this point as you need to love the daily grind of whatever it is that you're doing, not the occasional glory success time right and and if you look at a lot of people who have been very successful like people who let's say are the kind of scientists who win nobel prizes they're obsessed with the day-to-day they're obsessed with the mathematics of what they do they're obsessed with the lab work they're obsessed with the principles the theory the wanting to know they weren't sitting there the whole time imagining their nobel prize acceptance speech and and waiting for that and because anyone who does that either won't get there will be so wholly unsatisfied by it as to feel that the whole thing was worthless right and so that's the one idea and the other idea is just a much more practical one which is a lot of the time we focus on like did we get an answer right right so if you imagine that you're doing like some kind of quiz and there's two answers potentially like multiple choice for any anything you do but the thing you're doing is solving differential equations well if you just picked randomly you'd get it right 50 percent of the time so just stop thinking so much about like, did I get the right answer as much as like, did I even like go on the correct path? Because if you're taking the incorrect path and then getting the right answer by chance or by some side channel attack or whatever, where you've just figured out that it's alternating between A and B or whatever, you, you haven't learned the thing that, that you're trying to learn, right? So you can get the answer wrong every time as long as you know why and as long as you understand the process, because eventually over time, knowing the process will lead to the accuracy. Beautiful. All right, this one is from Paul Graham, but have you ever read his essay, Keep Your Identity Small? Yes, a few times. I really enjoy it, yeah. It's a great essay. Explain the central idea and why it's a mental model we should have. Oof. I think, like, yeah, in some sense, you want to try and, like, avoid using set theory to explain this, but it's very tempting. But as far as my takeaway from it, there are a lot of ways in society and in the world and in our psychology that we can identify with the group that we can add an identity to ourselves right people go okay i'm very liberal so maybe if you're if you're from the united states you create an identity for yourself saying you know i am a democrat or maybe you're conservative and you say i'm a republican right and and that becomes then part of your identity so when some idea comes along that challenges that well that now challenges your identity and now you're not evaluating the idea as much as you are defending yourself a part of yourself Right now, imagine if you're doing that with almost every aspect of your life. You're doing it for your job. Let's say you are a lawyer. You're like, okay, well, I'm a Democrat lawyer, right? And now you're adding it on and you're like, oh, I'm a homosexual Democrat lawyer. And you're just adding on like another one and another one. And anytime ideas come into your, your sphere of attention, well, now they're not just challenging other ideas you hold. They're challenging your identity, a lot of the time. Mm. And the more you inflate this identity to say, I am all of these things, as opposed to just, I hold certain beliefs that I'm willing to change given the right evidence, the more you're making yourself vulnerable to, at the very least, clouded judgment. And at the worst, just defending against everything to a fault and to your own detriment and to the detriment of everyone around you. Right, because everything becomes tribalistic if you've always got some addendum to your identity that puts you in an in-group, out-group position with whatever idea you're facing. Right? So look, when you think of yourself, just think of yourself. And you happen to hold some ideas now, and that might change, as opposed to thinking of yourself as, I'm an X, Y, Z, A, B, C, 1, 2, 3. Because you're just giving people more ammunition to upset you and to challenge you in ways that don't update your thinking but just make you feel emotionally reactive i mean the one liner for me is just not to increase the set of things that you're not allowed to question okay so last one in the sort of principle section and this comes from joshua bach and that is the difference between intelligence smartness and wisdom so to give you a refresh on that one 
is he sort of looks at intelligence as the ability to create accurate models of the world. Right. Smartness as the ability to execute some plan based on that model. Okay. And then wisdom being selecting the right goal to actually plan towards. Mm. I like that. So I think often we speak as individuals and as a society about it generally increasing intelligence or being more wise. But mm. if you separate it out into those three separate categories where you say, so I have plenty of intelligence here, I've got a good model, but having a good model for how to destroy the world is still an unwise thing to do. Yes. Okay. And having a good model of how to destroy the world might be unwise, but as long as you don't have the smartness, as I use the word there, to do it, then it's also doesn't matter, right? Because there could be a good model that says, well, if we could just get a black hole to appear next door, then that is unwise and it's an intelligent way to destroy us, I guess, but I don't have the smartness or the technology essentially to actually materialize that black hole. Mm. Yeah, well, two ideas there. Firstly, is that the black hole next door is a is a really great burn for one of your roommates, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> But uh, that aside, it's uh, there's a related model that I've I can't remember the source of this or if it was something that I sort of amalgamated from other sources and combined myself. But I've had this model for a few years, which is the difference between data, information, and knowledge. And it's it's very similar, right? Data is your most low level bits on the wire. It's the log files. It's the spreadsheet, whatever that might be, right? Just the raw data, and you know nothing from that. But it's there. There's something to be gleaned from it. And possessing it, it has some value. Information is then your summary statistics about that, your trends, your analyses, your models from that. And then knowledge is what you do with that. That's the mental models you create that guides you in life. It's the understanding of the results of the meta-analysis of all the experiments and what that means for what diet you should have, what exercise protocol you should follow, what substances you should avoid. Right. So that is a really nice hierarchy, I find, for being able to delineate between when you know things versus when you just have access to information or data. All right. So if you've been enjoying this so far, we have already recorded and will be releasing a few more episodes like this. I hope you enjoyed this and gained something from it. As always, check out the show notes for links to the stuff, books, podcasts that we discussed. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram, that's at PodTangent. And consider sending this podcast to one of your friends. There really is more digital content out there than any one of us will ever be able to consume in a lifetime. And... You really are doing someone a favor if you sincerely think they will benefit from or enjoy something and you share it with them. Otherwise, they are just as beholden to the next thing to float onto the top of their newsfeed as the rest of us are. And with that, we will see you here next time. Thank you.